This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne, truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy. I'm Dr. Sigmund McZiff. And norm, I mean, what ordinarily happens is that radiotherapy is the hiatus between Marinara and the scientists of Einstein and Gogo. And I walked into the studio today. I have never seen a deader place <laughs> in my life. So Marinara absent. So Bronwy here is not well. And, and please get well soon, Bron. And nobody else was here. It was, it was like a morgue. Anyway... Radiotherapy is here to save the day. And uh, so we've got the wonderful Perry Partham, who's, uh, who's with us. And uh, we've got Viom Sharma back. And he's a bit of a, he's a controversial sort of guy. And we'd uh, love to have him in the studio. And we've also got uh, <clears throat> the one who keeps us honest, Kentus Maximus. And Kent has had an enormous week. I mean, an article published in The Conversation, retweeted by none other than J.K. Rowling. Now, could you... He sits there. I mean, he's sort of like, you know, like this little Buddha behind the scenes. You know, you never hear his voice. But here he is, this searing intellect and... Wow, wow, we wow. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm sure uh, it must have been a PA. Surely it wasn't her. Of course well, it was her. Of it course was it was her. her. Don't downplay it. Yeah. We should actually talk about the substance of your article at some mm. point too, I think, because that's the important thing. That's what she was retweeting after all. <laughs> so outstanding. I mean, we have got some one. I mean, the, the quality of individual we've got here within the Triple R family and, uh, and we're blessed to have Kent here making life easy for us on radiotherapy. So now, uh, now welcome, Perry Partham. You, you've not been well yourself like no, so many right. others. When you were talking about walking into the morgue, I was like, that's how I felt all week. <laughs> oh, you poor thing. <laughs> here I am. I'm crouched over in the corner so I don't spread any germs to anybody else, but I'm very happy to keep talking as long as I don't cough or So now you've dragged yourself up and you're going to talk uh, um, uh, relatively soon about uh, the epigenetics of pain, which is um, pretty remarkable. Um, topic and uh, I mean we all experience pain I mean you've been experiencing pain yourself and I experienced searing grief and pain uh, yesterday watching my football team go down but but we know that I mean pain uh, psychological pain physical pain somatic pain it's it's uh, it's a massive topic so we're going to have a look at that uh, in a little while and welcome Vion back to the back to the show very lovely to hear, have you here hello great to be back yeah yeah and you're going to be talking about um, this fascinating case which has ended so tragically uh, relatively recently Charlie Gard uh, so we look forward to hearing a little bit about that so we're going to um, come back uh, after uh, intro to Dr. Doctor and uh, uh, strap yourselves in, as Tallman has always said, and uh, let's enjoy the ride over the next hour. Doctor, doctor, give me the news. I got a bad case of loving you. No pills gonna cure my ill. I got a bad case of loving you. Now, instead of... Uh, uh, of some Doctor Doctor stuff, we're going to get Kent to tell us a little bit about that article that was published in the in the conversation. What was the topic? The um, the topic was orphanage tourism and uh, modern slavery. So, give us the the sort of executive summary of uh, of what this was about. Okay, so um, there's a context for it in the sense that uh, coming up next week, 
there's a, um, a federal hearing into modern slavery. So they're looking to find out. Oh, they've, they've invited contributions from a range of sectors. Um, and um, so including among those submissions were submissions that modern slavery could be understood by accounting for children in orphanages in various parts of the world, um, given that, you know, 70, 80%, depending on how you count these, and that's a problem in itself, um, 70, 80% of children in orphanages um, have family, have, a, you know, family of some sort, and in fact, m- most likely even parents. Mm. So, in other words, we're treating their role in the orphanage as labour. And what countries are you specifically talking about? And is, there, is there a particular focus? It's the usual suspects. Yeah. So um, in our neighbourhood, uh, Southeast Asia is rife with it, but it's not exclusive to Southeast Asia. Um, um, the, people might be able to even remember back to a lot of the orphanage storages, storages, orphanage stories that were coming out of um, post-Soviet breakup, you know, in places like Romania and, and the likes where a lot of kids were put into care. Or well, yeah. care, capital, you know, inverted commas, care. We've also got our own pretty ignominious history of orphanages in Australia, particularly in Western Australia, mm. children brought over from overseas. Yeah, yeah. So, the que- you know, it begins with the question, to what extent were they separated from family? I mean, we could even talk about that in Indigenous context, but um, to what extent were they separated from family um, and to what extent were was a family absent? And even then, it's... the the. <laughs> Thanks for mentioning the tweet. I'm, I'm, I'm blushing, um, so it's good that we're on radio. Um, but uh, the quote that uh, J.K. Rowling took out of the article was, there's no such thing as a good orphanage. And that, mm. that, so treating that as the starting point. Well, this is a fascinating thing. I mean, th- th- this has ramifications um, for society at large, but the, the, the long-term mental health impact on those who, who are modern-day slaves, um, it's profound. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I reckon uh, if um, um, Malice was in the room, who deals specifically with child trauma, um, I'd love to hear him talk about that. I mean, certainly from my own experience of visiting these sorts of places, um, the the children see um, volunteerists or visitors or, you know, you choose your label, um, coming through... Um, and rapid rotation, um, but they're often there long enough to form an attachment, and then they leave. Mm. And then they, another one comes in, they form another attachment, then they leave. They form another attachment, then they leave. That must, you know, I'm sure um, Malice would tell us that that's the definition of child trauma. Um, yeah, absolutely. I think this is something that uh, we should revisit, mm. Kent. I think it's uh, a, um, a credit to you. And, uh, and uh, well, and JK, if you're listening, um, uh, we're very happy to have you uh, uh, as part of our listening audience. Well, thanks for your interest in raising it. Um, I'll put a, um, a post up on the, uh, on the website to the link and to an organisation called Rethink Orphanages. Fantastic, fantastic. Now, um, we might uh, get straight into it. Uh, so, Vion, this story about... Uh, Charlie Gard. So, firstly, I, w- I wonder if you could just tell us a little bit of background about uh, about him, his condition, and uh, and uh, I mean the, the moral and and ethical conundrum that so many people have found themselves in. Absolutely. So, first off, I have to admit that I actually came quite late to the story of Charlie Gard, and the thing that really took me by surprise was just the epic scale of this very very sad story. But yes, we can talk definitely about the background. Um, the danger is that the second you start speaking about it, you, you're going to have a widely split opinions about any and all of the facts. But very, very simply, 
baby Charlie Gard was an 11th month old baby in London who actually died yesterday, which is probably the only non-controversial thing you can say about this. But uh, baby Charlie was born with a rare disease with no cure and the parents wanted him to have this very experimental medical treatment. And the hospital and the judicial systems said, no, we should palliate uh, baby Charlie instead because there's no real hope for a cure and we're probably just going to prolong his suffering. So that's really it in a nutshell. And, I mean, just hearing that, hearing myself even say that, it makes you ask all sorts of questions about well, who has a right to do whatever. And, uh, and it's, it's a very complicated thing. But, yeah, true, we do really have to consider the specifics. Now, the disease that Charlie was diagnosed with was something called MDDS, mitochondrial DNA depletion syndrome. Fairly rare set of disorders, and he had an even rarer subtype within that, where basically his muscles and brain cells don't work. And the disease is so rare that only 15 such cases have been documented, and there is no known cure at all. Most uh, people with this, most kids with this, die in their infancy. So it's a it's a pretty pretty rare and sad case. Mm. Mm. And so the the parents were. I mean, I, I think this sort of came into the news when there was some suggestion that there was a possible treatment available in the United States. Is that is that correct? That's right, and that's really where things started to to. Just to split up in terms of people's opinions. Basically, at the five-month mark, baby Charlie was very, very sick. Most kids at that age are learning how to sit a little bit. Uh, baby Charlie couldn't open his eyes, couldn't breathe, heart and kidneys are failing, lots of seizures. And so together with the parents, the hospital actually talked about this very experimental treatment, for a treatment for which there is no proof. There is just a very tenuous theoretical suggestion that it might actually work. But then as they were talking about the treatment, the baby Charlie got even sicker and then the hospital said, we're not going to do it. But a doctor, a neurologist in the United States said, I'm willing to give it a try. And really that's where things uh, got very, very, I guess, acrimonious between the parents and, and the court systems. And so this neurologist in the United States who had never really even seen Charlie was initially saying that, hey, what's the harm? It's worth a try. Uh, and really that was taken to be uh, probably far more seriously, I think, than it should have by a lot of people in the public. Uh, it, there was this suggestion that, hey, this treatment might actually work, whereas if you really inspect that promise of a cure closer, um, there was just virtually no chance of this this actually happening. And it was only, say, four or five months later when even that doctor who offered the cure said, let's be honest, this is not going to get back any of his uh, of baby Charlie's already gone brain function and there's virtually you know, kind of no chance. But that promise of that cure or that hope for that cure that was always very unlikely is just re really what gave rise to this epic, epic uh, scale of a uh, of, of disagreement between people, and it was truly epic, wasn't it? it was It was um, it, it spanned continents. In fact, I think Donald Trump weighed in at some point with an opinion. That's right. I mean, the the way this escalated was uh, at one point the 
hospitals moved that we should turn off the ventilation machine. They went to the higher court. Uh, the parents disagreed. They said, we'll raise the money. And on a GoFundMe campaign, they raised the equivalent of our $2 million Australian dollars. And then the parents took the decision to the Court of Appeal, where it was upheld. They took it to the European Human Rights Council. It was upheld there. And that point, the Pope is in there saying, we will t- bring the baby to Rome. Donald Trump is tweeting, we'll do anything we can. Ted Cruz is in on it. There is Charlie's army who's turning up to court every day. Death threats against uh, the hospitals. Uh, I mean, it, it just beggars belief to, to see how much this uh, this really blew up and uh, it's it, you know the internet really weighed in here amazing that's amazing do you have any information on the actual treatment that was being offered that's right so the treatment that was being offered was uh nucleoside uh treatment so to speak uh, and it's basically was going to be given in the form of this powder that would be put in this drink that baby charlie would be getting through a nasogastric tube so this tube that has to be inserted through 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 the mouth and nose and into the stomach and fingers crossed it'd work and i say fingers crossed because it had never been attempted in this specific subtype of a disorder not on humans not even on mice the closest we'd come to it was this treatment had been tried on a very mild or much milder form rather of this disorder and even then it was a mm, maybe it works kind of situation and there was really no realistic chance of this of actually working uh, and so that's that's been a huge issue people believing that this might be a plausible chance that we can we can fix this condition where there probably really actually wasn't and even if it didn't you wouldn't really reverse any of the, the lost brain function for, for baby charlie and by that end he was sort of functionally really unable to 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 be conscious, I think. Is that right? That's right. Uh, he was... It was very questionable whether he was even awake or asleep at any given point. And things got to, to that extent where, ultimately, it was actually the parents who withdrew from the court's process and said, well, even if he were to survive now, uh, the the just the quality of life would just be non-existent almost. And they, I guess, pulled out at the last moment and said, <coughs> this is, we, have to, we have to stop now. You can really feel for the parents, though, can't you? Particularly if they can see a baby that just looks like it's asleep and that's their child. It would be very difficult then to make a decision which would then cause the baby's life to end. It is very hard. In fact, when I read the things the parents were were saying, I was just struck by how persuasive that that was. They were initially claiming that, no, the baby Charlie's not not as sick as the doctors say. I can see him moving. He can feel my touch. Those kind of things. And you you read that stuff and your, your eyes kind of well up it's it's difficult kind of not to um and it i have to say that the parents did say quite a few things that made me really appreciate how mature they'd been throughout the entire process they say things like this is not about us saying we know best uh so they really kind of broke out of that 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 i guess meme that we sometimes use for for for, for difficult patients so to speak they were really quite understanding and they said well we want to try it out for three months and if it doesn't work we'll stop and it was just a case of everyone trying to do the best thing possible and yet uh you know there was just no easy way so i mean i, I get that there is a universality about um society community people understanding the extraordinary pain that parents go through when they have a sick child and uh, anyone who's been a parent knows just how raw that emotion is and so it taps into something which is which is primitive which is present in uh, in in almost all of us but 
there are sick children all over the world. There are dying children all over the world. We, have, we live in a pretty crappy world and terrible things happen. What do you think it was about this particular case that ignited this inferno of, uh, of reaction? I mean, you know, when you've got the Pope and you've got, I mean, he whose name who won't be mentioned, the current uh, incumbent president of the United States. We can call him Voldemort. It's the, the Voldemort effect. It really is, <laughs> yeah, isn't it? Yeah. Right. Um, but, but, you know, you, you have all of these... The, these very, very senior public figures making comments, something very serious mm. is going on here. What, what do you think that was about? That's right, yeah. So there were a few unique p- factors at play here. Uh, there was, firstly, I, I guess, just the just the, the, the story itself really sucked you in in terms of there just being no cure and then at the last moment this possible chance and humans are incredibly hopeful and uh, we have incredibly i guess wishful thinking for better or worse so there was that possibility uh, you know in front of of the parents but also we have to admit that it really can only have taken this epic scale this story uh, in the era of social media and the internet mm. um where parents could uh, or people could write posts about it and converse about it and then the president can tweet about it those kind of things are happening and where uh, parents can, can give interviews where there's a human face to put on the story and it's incredibly accessible to everyone just really made people i guess relate in that way i guess on the other hand all the hospital and the doctors had was media position statements so you really had these kind of characters in this story and on the surface if you look very far away from a distance and kind of squint your eyes it it really seems like a very kind of draconian authoritarian character versus you know the good guys so to speak and there's something about that story that i think really sucks people in but when you when you look at it closer it's just so much more complex and I think the other thing that underlies all of this is there's two things that I see. One is it's the same story as Lorenzo's Oil. Did you see that movie with Nick Nolte? Mm. You know, there's this child with a terrible, very rare mitochondrial condition. His father is very dedicated to finding a cure and uses his understanding of molecular biology and even physics to to actually generate some kind of cure. And it's way outside the medical establishment. It really appeals to a lot of people who, you know, for whom... Medicine is a black box and for whom also, I mean, for everybody, this child's condition was at the very fringes of our understanding of medicine and so nobody really knows the answer. It's all grey. Exactly. And I think (coughs) when everyone knows so little about it, it often feels like, well, any opinion is, you know, somewhat plausible. Whereas, it's What uh, do you make then of the... what, What is the responsibility of... What do we as doctors, what is our responsibility when from a distance, uh, in, in relation to this American neurologist, he'd never examined Charlie Gard. He may have had some understanding of the condition, but he's, <clears throat> he's really, he's not just throwing a pebble into the pond, he's dropping a, 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 a giant-sized bomb, a mother of all bombs into the pond, because his, um, his offer of treatment really was the thing that stirred everything up. That's exactly right. And I think to a certain extent that was a bit irresponsible. In fact, certainly in the, the judge's um, judgment, uh, they, they referenced this as well. Um, but at every time, however, when we really turned the microscope on, on the words he was saying and we felt the heat of it, he'd always 
pull back mm. on how realistic that actually was. And not to mention there were strong financial incentives for that doctor uh, to offer that treatment. And when it really came down to it and he, the doctor was showing the EEGs, the brainwave patterns of baby Charlie, at that very last moment that doctor for the first time went, yeah, look, this is really not going to help. And so it's it's a little bit it's it's a bit sad when I guess we, we really kind of dangle that carrot in front of people when they're most desperate, and uh, and yeah it, it's it, it's so it's so uh, strange when you consider that every doctor who ever examined Charlie, whether from that hospital or other ones, concurred on one side, and yet you've got this guy on the other side of the Atlantic who's saying, hey, maybe maybe we can kind of try this. It's uh, you know it's a very unfair position to put doctors uh, to, to put patients and their families in so uh you know it's really maybe a bit more you know kind of skeptical about who should be offering opinions even medical opinions mm. yeah but i also wonder if it raises another ethical issue which is who owns the rights to a child mm. you know uh really is it the parents can they can they try anything at all and where's the advocacy for the individual child suffering in the process yeah that's right and that is the big question that whole notions being challenged i guess which is that you know parents don't really in any meaningful way own a child in our in our societies and for most part i think we we all agree that is that is a good thing it's not ownership in the way i don't know mixie's looking very 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 skeptical well we'll put i mean is it well you can't do whatever you like to to a child you're there to to, to, to take care of them, protect their sins. <laughs> well, you, you go well, ahead. You no, 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 no. I'm sort of uh, going to channel Khalil Gibran here. <laughs> Your children are the are the the arrows from which you, the bow, send them forth. Something like that. No, look. I mean, I think I think this is a very complicated issue. But but it, where it actually becomes even more complex is when your child is receiving expensive treatment. As from part of the of a healthcare system that every taxpayer is contributing to, so this this I mean you can extrapolate from the Charlie Guard tragedy to any case where somebody is, for example, on life support, where the question the the, the tragic appalling issue confronting family members is. Uh, on receipt of medical advice that this person is never going to recover that uh, you know you, we, we are gonna, we're confronted with the decision of having to turn off the machinery now that is you know you're asking people who don't who aren't necessarily very literate in the ways of medicine to make decisions uh, they have to rely very very heavily on the expertise of those who are advising them and there's so much emotion here there is so much pain it is i don't think there's an easy answer but i think that the that i mean we can empathize with the 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 terrible suffering uh, of the parents but it's uh, it's in the realm of philosophers i think to 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 determine who actually has agency here? Who is actually who's responsible for an infant whose brain is barely functioning? That's right, and uh, you know, it may well it be philosophers because I, I certainly don't feel like I'm necessarily qualified to make a judgment one way or another. That's mm. what I've kind of learned from this. Not being a parent myself, I've really kind of had to check myself and go. Wow, this is you know, this is complicated. There's so so much more to this. But even ethicists have been split about this. There's people from all sorts of walks of life. Even the medical profession, I've seen a lot of disagreement about how that the case was handled. So, 
yeah, it's a yeah. What, what well, a tale. It, it's it's a tough one. And being a parent, I can say mm. that on the hierarchy of anxiety, um, the most catastrophic form of anxiety is when there's something that's uh, gone wrong with one of your kids. It's uh, it uh, it blows everything else into the water. Well, Vian, that was uh, that's a fascinating story, and I'm sure we'll uh, we'll discuss that and uh, <clears throat> and its connections further. Um, now, Perry. The epigenetics of pain. Let's start, first of all, what is epigenetics? So we think that we had always had the understanding that people are born with genes and that's just what they get and that's what stays constant all the way through their lives. Um, But what we think now is the case is that, in fact, the environment that you live in also influences the way that genes are expressed in in your body. Um, And that's what epigenetics is. It's the influence of environmental factors on the genetic material that you started off with. And sometimes that can cause some genes to be turned off and some other genes to be turned on. And it's... It's, it's a really interesting area of research at the moment because it means that, in fact, people who are born, say, for example, with um, genetic conditions that we previously have not been able to cure or even treat might have those genetic conditions at least um, malleable or um, improved to some degree by the influence of epigenetic um, medication. So, you know, genome medicine is, is really booming at the moment and this is, this is why, because previously we had never really thought that we would be able to have an influence on those kinds of illnesses. And it also looks like um, epigenetics has an influence in other areas of medicine as well, like chronic pain, which is what I'm going to talk about today. So, in... Uh, in simple terms, uh, we used to think nature or nurture. Now it's nature and nurture. That's exactly right. That's a beautiful way of putting it, actually. Okay. Mm. So chronic pain then? Well, so uh, we think that chronic pain, the experience of chronic pain is actually an example of epigenetics in action. So that um, when someone has an initial injury, we know that the acute pain response is... um, Uh, mediated by the brain and in fact influenced also by the limbic system which in which is the home of memory and emotion Uh, and it's the sort of classic situation where your little kid learns not to touch the hot plate because it causes them pain and so subsequently they have a fear response and an aversion to moving towards that towards the hot plate Uh, and it's an enduring response they learn it and it sits there in their memory for a long time We think that the chronic pain response is a sort of manifestation of that very useful acute pain response. So that okay, so but but let's be be clear about this: acute and chronic. Often they're terms that are often misused in the community. And acute means short term, chronic means long term, ongoing. It's not a description of the severity; it's the duration. Yeah, I think that's true. But often chronic pain has been precipitated by an acute incident like a back injury or any other kind of injury or um, some people might be able to relate to the example of shingles where you get um, an inflammation of a sensory nerve in a part of your body and it comes up or blistery and even after the blisters have healed you still have pain in that area because in fact the nerves have been affected and damaged and the signals that they send back to the brain are abnormal and persistent. Okay okay so so what is the the where is the the epigenetic component in terms of chronic pain like how does how does something develop 
into chronic pain. We, I mean, we, un- we can understand the, the shingles story, but uh, but you know, the chronic pain is rife in the community, and mm-hmm. uh, um, this is a big, big issue. Yeah, well, it, it sort of harks back to the conversation that I was having a few weeks ago about opioid abuse in yeah. North America, and increasingly in Melbourne. I felt a bit after those particular conversations like I was blaming the victim. Because, in fact, people do suffer very severely from chronic pain and and large numbers of people do, particularly as they reach midlife. There was a couple of estimates that it's up to 20 and sometimes even 40% of general practitioners, sorry, of patients presenting to general practitioners actually suffer from chronic pain. So it's numerically a huge problem and it's also for each individual a huge problem because it limits their ability to function nearly every area of life if it's severe enough. Mm. I think I've lost your question, actually. No, 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 no. So, so uh, w- what then? Like, say, for example, I mean, we, we, in in Western society, someone has uh, has a back injury. You know, it's very, very typically L five S one lumbar disc prolapse. Having been there myself, mm-hmm. um, uh, and the pain doesn't go away. Yeah. I mean, we know that the natural bodily response to an injury is towards healing. And most conditions should actually improve within a set period of time. You know, there's a range from person to person. But but for some people, pain is ongoing and rules their lives. Yeah, so what we think happens is where the epigenetics comes in in this particular situation. So the persistent stimulus to the brain actually causes a plasticity in the neurons, um, a hypermethylation of the DNA, which then changes... So hypermethylation, you might, it might explain that. Then. Oh, okay. So there are three... So I, I thought I might just delve into the science very briefly because I know that we've got to move on to other stuff. Um, the way that epigenetics functions in chronic pain is we think that neurons um, are turned on and turned off. So the genes for neurons are turned on and turned off by the experience of um, repeated stimulus as occurs in a chronic back injury. Uh, in fact, the neurons that, sorry, the genes that code for excitatory neurons, which then fire and, and stimulate a pain response, are um, increased in there. And so the neurons grow, they become more branching and there are more of them. Uh, conversely, the inhibitory neurons are silenced. And so there's not as much um, to prevent the experience of pain um, in, in the central nervous system and that's that's where this feedback loop begins. So what then happens to people is that uh, they experience a couple of different things which we have names for. One is called hyperalgesia. So after a chronic injury, they might become hypersensitive all over their body to even quite mild pain stimulus. And the other one is allodynia, which means that a light touch stimulus um, on the area that's injured can be interpreted as severe pain. And so people are very distressed and they tend to kind of really avoid anything that could possibly stimulate an increase in their pain. And of course, that has flow on effects to whether they stop playing soccer or whether they stop picking up their child or um, even whether or not they're able to continue to walk to work or drive a car. So it really inhibits them from living their lives. And that's the significance of it. But if I go back into the into the neurons for just a moment, the way we think the epigenetics works is that um, the DNA become there is a DNA methylation that occurs. So there's three different processes that probably influence the development of epigenetic pain response. Um, one of them is DNA methylation. Another one is um, oh no, I have to look at my notes to actually give you the right term. <laughs> um, uh, histone deacetylation and microRNA alteration. So the thing about 
um, neurons, of course, is that whereas skin cells divide pretty frequently um, and are renewed over and over again, the cells in the brain, in particular the neurons, have a much slower turnover. And so if you're looking... Sorry. If you're looking to um, affect perhaps the DNA of these brain cells, um, it'll take a lot longer for that to happen. This is why chronic pain seems only to really kind of get its momentum after months and sometimes years um, of this chronic pain stimulus occurring. Um, it's a very slow process and that's another reason why we think it's so hard to treat is that it's been developing for so long. The methylation changes and the other changes in the brain have been established so um, so effectively. Uh, it's really difficult to arrest that with a medication or a treatment of some sort. So this... Um it, it, like central sensitization, mm. so there's a um, a peripheral stimulus, um, and then e- even uh, in response to a much milder external input, it is can be experienced uh, in a, in a, a markedly exaggerated fashion, and people are not putting this on they are actually experiencing legitimate levels of of pain with associated emotional distress and often with fear avoidance and uh, catastrophic thinking and life can become uh, really dreadful for for the sufferers yeah that's absolutely true and unfortunately the opiate medications that we give them tend to actually make things worse in the brain systems itself. So what we think is that um, the opioid receptors are upregulated, another example of epigenetics, by chronic provision of opiates, Um, particularly the nucleus accumbens in the brain, which is where um, people get addicted to opiates, but also peripherally there are lots more opioid receptors which actually cause pain if they're not um, if they're not treated with further opiates. So um, people are hypersensitized even further by the treatments that we give them, which is pretty grim. So what then is the, like, wh- where do people go? Like, you know, people yeah. who are listening who have got, who have got chronic pain and who, for example, are taking uh, opiate analgesic medications. Um, mm. What are the options that are available? Well, so experiment, there's an article in Nature which... Um, precipitated my interest in all of this just recently um, and what we think if if we properly understand the changes that epigenetics makes to um, DNA and RNA we can probably reverse those and people have been able to do that experimentally both in vitro and also in animal models uh, but what we think we're doing when we encourage people to take up Tai Chi or yoga or meditation or any other kind of um, graded self-aware um, movement is that we're actually doing the same thing, uh, which is a biofeedback loop. So what we're doing is we're training the neurons not to respond to any sensation as painful. We're training them to experience normal movement, normal strain and and normal pressure on various parts of their body as normal um, and then gradually reduce that kind of hyperalgesic response. Mm. Easy for us to say when we're not in a hyperalgesic state or hyperalgesic state ourselves, but um, that's actually what people are trying to achieve through um, all of these different modalities. Um, And I think that's what the scientists might be able to achieve in future. In fact, where all of this um, information came from was from cancer research. 
they're using epigenetics in cancer quite a lot and one of the side effects they noticed of these particular drugs that I'm talking about was in fact that they reduced significantly the inflammatory pain response associated with advanced cancer. So they've moved from using can, um, these medications specifically in cancer over to thinking about how useful they might be in treating chronic pain. So maybe one day we might be able to do with medication what we're now doing with use of yoga and biofeedback. <clears throat> I mean, it's, it's interesting. It, clinically, in a number of, or many really, of the patients who I've seen who've got chronic pain, um, who I, I have been treating for, for example, um, an associated depressive condition, um, those who who involve themselves heart and soul in a multidisciplinary pain management program where their focus is often getting off the opiate medications um, they may well be on certain medications that assist in terms of pain control or altering the pain threshold but much of the of the the process is about self management it's about gentle movement it's about getting back into functional um, a, a more functional approach to life and also about using distraction techniques to be able to take one's mind off the pain because the, the linkage, we all know that pain makes us anxious but there is also this feedback, anxiety makes the pain, makes our experience of the pain more marked. So getting into a process where you can actually feel some sense of mastery, some sense of control yourself over a situation which has f perhaps for months, if not years, dominated your life. It does seem to be a, a really useful path to go down. Mm -hmm. And the biological basis for that is clear. A lot of the pain um, receptors uh, originate in that limbic area where we do have pain, memory and, and fear response live. And so, of course, it's all very closely allied. I think um, I haven't even started to talk about um, the effect of hypnosis or the effect of music on people's ability to manage and control their pain. Maybe we can talk about that some other time. I, I, I'm just... This there's this issue which I th uh, it often comes up. People ask me uh, uh, very much in non-clinical situations. What happens when you go to a um, a GP uh, or you've got you've got a mental health issue? Um, who do you know to um, to to go and see? When should you see a psychiatrist? When should you see a psychologist? In fact. What is the difference between a psychiatrist and a psychologist? The level of uh, of uncertainty in the community about the difference is uh, is quite remarkable. And uh, let's clarify that at the, uh, at the outset. A psychiatrist is a medical doctor who specialises in psychiatry. Uh, so you do your medical training, you work as a resident, and then you enter a specialist program just as a surgeon enters a specialist program, uh, any other form of specialist, and a psychiatrist does a further five or six years of training to become a qualified specialist in mental health issues capable of treating the wide array of, uh, of such issues. A psychologist is not a medical doctor, but is someone who undergoes a psychology degree and uh, may focus more or less on one particular area of psychology. They may be um, industrial psychologists, they may be um, clinical psychologists, they may go on to do a master's and, uh, and they develop um, particular levels of expertise in the management of a wide variety of, of mental health issues, but they're not medical doctors. No, they're not, but the training is really lengthy. Mm. lengthy so they do an undergraduate degree, uh, then they do an honours program, they all do masters, and then they subspecialise. And people who are considered clinical psychologists then have a doctorate. 
um, which is often coursework rather than research. So it takes them ages. I've got a couple of patients who are highly confident psychologists. And so either way, either way, if, you, if you're going to be seeing a clinical psychologist uh, or a psychiatrist, you are, you are seeing someone who has been in the training system for many, many years. But I, I thought, Viom, somebody comes into your... Uh, your general practice office and they're complaining about a mental health condition and you've got sure. to, you, you've got a waiting room full of patients and uh, this person's coming in and uh, you know they're anxious they're depressed they're stressed they've uh, they've had some sort of trauma in their life mm. what is the sort of cognitive process that you go through in terms of working out where you go, do you look after the person yourself, which is, I mean, and the vast bulk of mental health issues in the community are looked after by GPs. Do you refer them to a psychologist on a mental health plan or do you refer them to a psychiatrist? What's, uh, what goes through your mind? Yeah, so it's a very varied uh, experience from GP to GP depending on their geography, where they are, uh, also to do with the kind of patient population that normally comes into them. But uh, to give you a very broad overview, I suppose, uh, of patients who come in with um, various common, I guess, mental health uh, care issues, generally speaking, you'll do the usual thing of you know, take a history, uh, think, do a very focused examination, and if you don't think that they're... If you think that it's, say, something like, for example, depression or anxiety, uh, like you mentioned, or or even you know, bipolar or psychotic disorders, I guess you, you really try to get a handle, firstly, on is this something that's just kind of emerging that I'm going to have to lay out, help lay out the plan for, or is this something that's already been going on for a while and I and and I'm part of a pre-existing plan. So where where do I kind of fit in with all this? The other thing we try to work out, I suppose, is the severity and the complexity of the case, and that can be as much as a medical thing in terms of uh, how medically, chemically, you know, medication-based complex it is versus how socially complex it is. Um, you know, does what kind of social supports does this person have? Are there financial challenges? Are there language issues going on? And then there's the other part of it, which is to see, well, how does this fit in with my skill set? So, for example, a lot of GPs I know are very comfortable treating uh, patients who have uh, disorders such as schizophrenia, for instance. A lot, maybe not so much. And so you really try to look at it from all these kind of angles and, of course, in terms of what the patient wants and decide what you want to do. Very commonly, uh, something I'll, I'll do, a uh, vast majority of my patients I realise will, will benefit from seeing a, uh, seeing a psychologist. And one of the best ways to do that is under a mental health care, mental health care treatment plan where basically we do a fairly detailed, usually 30 to 40-minute uh, assessment uh, about what the issues are, the the goals uh, that we're going to work towards, and what kind of therapies may or may not work, and then usually from that, a lot of the time we refer to a to a psycho- clinical psychologist, uh, which is the most common outcome, where basically the government subsidises several visits a year for them to go see psychologists. So they can usually see they can usually get ten sessions on a, on a mental health plan. That's right. So you you get anywhere between six to ten sessions I suppose the government subsidises you see psychologists, the psychologist and the GP chat uh, with the permission of the patient and it, we, we take 
things from there. That's usually where it goes. But then there'll be occasionally quite complex cases, perhaps even when we're uncertain about the diagnosis. And that's probably the the, uh, the main thing for, for, for me, I guess, I guess. When I'm a little bit uncertain about the diagnosis or a lot uncertain, uh, quite often we'll get a psychiatrist involved quite early uh, and let them draw up, I guess, uh, you know, with the patient, of course, the master plan and of how to go about this. Mm-hmm. And what level of communication do you have then with um, both the psychologist and the psychiatrist uh, in, in, well, with a psychologist who you refer someone to on a mental health plan, uh, how much feedback do you get by and large? So, look, the, the truth is it varies. It probably should be a little bit more, I suppose. But the, at the bare minimum, usually what will happen is a patient will see the psychologist several times and the psychologist will write to us after their sixth visit or fifth visit saying, this is how the patient going. There is progress. There is not progress. Could you use a judgment to see if medications need to be initiated or not? Because that's, of course, only something that a GP and a psychiatrist can do. So if, 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 we've, if they feel that medic that they're reaching their limits, well, then that's up to, to us to speak with a patient about and talk about, well, do we need to think about uh, involving medications? So, but on the other hand, I'd say the assessments that we get back from psychiatrists usually are far more comprehensive. Uh, I suppose we usually get a very detailed assessment back um, from the psychiatrist about what, I guess, a formulation is what we, we tend to call it, about what's going on, why is it happening and how to go about treating it. Can I ask a question? Yes. Because I usually write about three or four pages back to my GPs. Yes. Do you read it? Yes. Are you sure? Oh, my God. It is. Okay, <laughs> now I'm sure the answers vary from GP to GP, but generally speaking, any like long correspondence from a specialist, well, I, I get extremely excited about. Uh, firstly, just because it's just wonderful, I guess, to, to see that... So, to, to see someone care enough to delve into these issues deeply, it's usually a huge learning opportunity for us. Huge learning opportunity for us. Um, but I'm sure, it sounds like from the expression on your face that people can't appreciate on radio, that the, the <laughs> GPs vary too in terms of how much they read uh, uh, these things. But look, uh, personally, I, I can't get enough. Yeah. Write more. <laughs> you shouldn't invite that. Um, but I, I suppose the thing is that I know that GPs are very time pressured. So if you're seeing a patient every six minutes and on top of that you're doing all the paperwork that's required for each of them to send them off to whatever you think they need to do, how much time do you realistically have to sort of page through an assessment of one patient where the outcome is usually going to be, um, I think this person does or does not need a medication treatment and, you know, I'm going to continue on not seeing that patient. We've just got a couple of minutes to go. I think we're going to have to come back to this, uh, this topic because I... I I actually find it quite fascinating what goes through the minds. And, and I think what we might uh, perhaps do next time is what actually happens um, when you when the patient sits in for that first session uh, with uh, the psychologist and with the psychiatrist, uh, what their, uh, their lived experience is. So, um, so coming back to you, Vion, uh, in answer to Perry's question... That's right, yeah. So the short answer is, uh, yes, we are time poor, and that basically determines everything we do. So I'm absolutely sure uh, that a lot of GPs probably don't have the time to really, not just read, actually genuinely engage and reflect on on the the three, four-page letters. But like I said, this is really a matter of geography. Where I am now, uh, 
doing 15, 20 minute appointments is very realistic and I, we do have the time to do those kind of things. And, you know, if, if we just had more time, uh, if we just had more time, I, that would, I guess that would help. But, uh, but no, look, this is really not conducive to six minute medicine. I don't think it, good healthcare is conducive to six minute medicine at all. Mm. So, yeah, something to be addressed. Mm. Yeah, well, look, I, I think we might wrap things up, but I certainly think this is a topic that's worth coming back to. And um, and uh, I think what we might do is get uh, a clinical psychologist in here as well, and we can talk not only about the, uh, the actual experience of the consultation, but the different types of therapeutic approaches that are available out there, because it's certainly not one size fits all. And do you refer to a, uh, a clinical psychologist who practices? is CBT, cognitive behavior therapy? Do you refer to someone who's a psychodynamic psychotherapist? Um, do you refer to a general psychiatrist? All of these things. I mean, this is, uh, this is an, an area of huge importance and it really determines what the, the, the therapeutic experience of the individual is. So that just leaves me to thank our uh, wonderful panel today, Viam who uh, has been a real trooper and uh, and Perry who has been an even bigger trooper who's dragged herself out of her sick bag sick bed and uh, and uh, and Kentus who uh, who gives us something that we can all aspire to on the international stage uh, uh, we'll see you back next week for more radiotherapy this has been a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne truly independent community radio want to hear more check out our website at RRR dot org dot au